Well, good evening, everyone. Uh, if you're new here this evening, can I give you a special welcome? Uh, thank you so much for coming. Uh, what we've been doing over the past two days uh, is we've been looking at this book of Philippians, uh, and we've been seeing together that the book of Philippians is uh, profoundly challenging but profoundly encouraging for us. Um, we've seen in session number one, uh, we saw that the gospel uh, it gives us is, is, should be the center of our lives, should be the center of our lives. When we understand the gospel, the truth and relevance of the Lord Jesus, we find it begins to reshape our relationships, it begins to reshape our values, reshape our hopes uh, and ambitions. Um, This morning then we looked into chapter 2 and we saw that not only does the gospel give us a new center, uh, but the gospel gives us a pattern that we ought to live by, following the pattern of the Lord Jesus. And as we follow his humble service, Uh, we will find that we are united together as God's people. Uh, And then uh, just this afternoon, then we we looked, um, or late morning, whenever whenever you count it, session beginning or ending, uh, we looked uh, at chapter 3 and we saw that the gospel uh, in many ways gives us not just a center, not just a pattern, but gives us a direction for our lives. It's, uh, It's like a race and encourages us to focus uh, on the finish line. So that's, if you've missed it, that's basically where we've come from, where we've been looking at. Uh, and now, over these next two sessions, we're going to look at chapter four in a little bit more detail. Um, and we're going to see first that when we understand the gospel fully, we're going to see that it begins to, I want to argue, bring harmony, bring harmony uh, to the people of God. But before we dive into the details, let's pray for God's help um, Father, we thank you that all scripture is breathed out by you, inspired by you. Uh, it's, it's there to make us wise for salvation through Jesus Christ. But it's also given to us so that we could be, that we might be trained, that we might uh, be taught, that we might be rebuked, that we might be corrected, so that we might be thoroughly equipped to live lives that are faithful and fruitful for you. And so we pray now, please help me as I speak, help us all as we listen, that we might know you more, so that we might love you more, and so that we might live to please you uh, with greater uh, diligence uh, and passion. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, so I want to begin by telling you another story. Uh, it's the story of a very public, very embarrassing fallout in a local church uh, between the, the senior minister and the music director. Okay, they had a very public fallout. And this, this, this fallout came to a, a head, a climax, over four weeks in a local church. Um, they fell out behind the scenes, but things got very public when uh, the minister one Sunday preached a sermon on submitting to your elders, okay, submitting to your elders. And then the music director came up immediately after uh, and uh, organized his choir, and they sung the song, I Shall Not Be Moved, okay. <laughs> the next week, the minister gets up and he preaches uh, preaches a sermon uh, on giving, giving to the local church. Uh, and then the music director follows him straight after uh, gathering uh, again the choir, singing the song, Jesus Paid It All. Okay. The following week, uh, the minister gets up and, and preaches a story or uh, preaches a sermon about the danger of gossip. Uh, and then the music director follows him with a closing hymn of, I love to tell the story. Um, Finally, the minister's thinking, well, this is just getting out of hand. This is an untenable position. We can't be publicly fighting like this. Uh, And before he preaches his sermon, or sorry, at the end of preaching his sermon this week, this final fourth week, he says, I believe uh, the time has come for me to move on. I, I think the Lord Jesus has guided me to this church, and now I think the Lord Jesus is, is leading me off somewhere, somewhere else. The closing hymn that day was, what a friend we have in Jesus. 
Local churches are not immune from falling out, from people being slighted, people being offended, uh, relationships breaking down and have been very difficult. It's just the same uh, as everywhere else. We carry with us a sinful nature as Christians uh, and therefore we struggle just like everyone else with pride and selfishness as we're considering this morning. Uh, And so it's not surprising then that folks in local churches also fall out. But perhaps, um, and this is going to sound a little ironic, uh, perhaps it's as we do church better that these falling outs can happen more frequently. What I mean by that? Well, if church, for example, in our local church, in Strandtown Baptist Church, where I serve as the minister, we we talk, there's a few few faces I recognize from the church here. Uh, We talk regularly about church not being an event that you attend, but a community you belong to, right? Not an event you attend, but a community you belong to. That's what church is. But if you do treat church as an event you attend perhaps even a little bit like this this weekend. Well, actually, it's very easy for all of us to get on this weekend. All you've got to do is sit beside someone for, you know, an hour for the session, uh, make sure you don't have to sit beside them again at the next session, and exchange some pleasantries, and you're gone. That's it. Weekend over. It's easy to get on. But it's as we think of church as family, a uh, family, where we let one another into each other's lives, where we serve together, we uh, pray together, we rub shoulders together, then increasingly it's easy for us to rub each other up the wrong way. And so ironically, it's as we do church family better that there's the greater danger that we fall out. Look, I'm not suggesting, just because that's true, I'm not suggesting then we just revert to going back to treating church as just an event you attend. Uh, Not at all. That option's not open to you, actually. Uh, When you read through the New Testament and you look at the language that's used to describe the church, it's, it's, it's very corporate and connected. So the language of a body where all the members are, are parts together, working together for the growth and the development of the whole body. Uh, or church is described as a building where all the members are different bricks, either supporting or leaning on each other. Uh, or church uh, is described as a family where we are siblings together. So no, we're not, we're not meant to just treat church as an event you attend. It's a community to belong to, but when you engage in it in that way, then there is this real threat, this real danger that we could fall out, that we could irritate, uh, that we could offend uh, one another. Uh, And so what do we do? What do we do uh, if that's the case? Well, I want to suggest again to you that these verses actually circle around again this idea of unity in the local church uh, and push it one step forward, uh, further forward, how to strive after harmony uh, in a local church. Now, it is when you come to a, a, a little section like this, which in my Bible is titled Imaginatively Exhortations, which means I don't really know what's going on here, but let me give you a very generic title. Maybe it's called Final Exhortations, Final Something uh, in Your Bible. Um, and it clearly is a, a list, a list of things. And it is, uh, and, and there are some lists that are a bit like to-do lists at the end of some letters of the New Testament that are a bit like um, to-do today, um, phone a friend, buy some milk, uh, collect the dry cleaning. Okay, those are things that you've got to do, but they're not necessarily connected in any way. They're just a list of things. And it is possible that these verses, verses 2 to verse 9, are a a random disconnected list of things to do. You know, you two, 
sorry, not you two particularly, uh, these two ladies in this, sorry, sorry, unless there's an issue, we can talk about that later, um, um, Yodia and Syntyche, uh, they, they fall out, you two ladies, sort, sort it out, you sort it out, you, rest of you, uh, rejoice in the Lord, the rest of you, you know, be prayerful, you know, is this just a, a random disconnected list uh, of things that you're to do? But I want to suggest, I think, and I, th- I think this is right, is that these items on this list are actually connected. They're connected. Uh, and they're connected around this idea of unity among the people of God. And uh, notice it, as we said, it begins with this plea to these two ladies who have fallen out. Uh, and it ends with this reference to the God of peace, the God of peace, the God of shalom, the God of peace. Um, and, and peace in the Bible is not just the cessation of hostility. It's, it's a whole thing. Uh, it's not only just peace in your heart, peace with God, but it also carries with it the idea of peace with other people. It's, it's, it's all of the above. Uh, and so the fact that this little section is topped and tailed with this reference to unity and harmony, peace among the people of God. What I want to do as we go through this, I might be wrong, uh, I want to try to connect one of, each one of these items on the list to unity, to unity. Again, I don't think it matters much if I'm wrong. Uh, we'll be considering each item on the list uh, in any case. But let's, let's have a go. Let's look at these ones in turn first. Um, Paul's first item on the list is, verses 2 and 3, be reconciled, be reconciled. He writes, I plead with Yodia, I plead with Syntyche uh, to be of the same mind in the Lord. Now, we have absolutely no idea what was going on between these two ladies. Um, I don't think it was anything too significant, to be honest. Uh, if it was something really important, if, they, if one of them had denied the truth of the gospel in some way and the other was calling them out on that, then Paul is happy to wade in on these sorts of debates and no doubt would have done. But he doesn't do that. He doesn't give us any information uh, as to what is going on here. Uh, nor does he take any sides. Uh, he says the same thing uh, to both ladies. Um, I think this is just, uh, just let's just be uh, non-chauvinistic. The, this was a particular example. Men, too, are guilty of squabbling in the local church, of course. But this is the particular example that faced, the particular situation that Paul faced. Um, these two ladies had fallen out for whatever reason, and Paul pleads with them. He pleads with them to be reconciled. Now, what that looks like normally, uh, to be reconciled, at the very very least, of course, that involves talking to each other. Uh, it may involve apologizing. It may involve asking for forgiveness and then giving that forgiveness But look, Paul doesn't go into any of the details, none of the details at all. Uh, Instead, he speaks to both women and addresses them in exactly the same way. Both of them are to do whatever is necessary to sort this out with no delay. There's no no notion that uh, any one of them is, is to wait for the other. You know how we are tempted to do that? Well, look, I'm happy. I'm happy to reconcile, of course. Uh, but just you tell them to come to me, and when they say sorry, you know, then, we'll, then we maybe can move forward. No, no, Paul speaks to both of them directly. This is a public fallout, and so it, it requires a public call-out by Paul. Uh, and they're to do whatever is necessary. Sometimes, of course, um, people need a little bit of help. A little bit of negotiation needs to happen, a little bit of organizing so that these two people can be in the right room and have that chat if necessary. And so Paul talks about help for them. Verse 3, 
Yes, and I ask you, loyal yoke fellow, help uh, these women who have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Now, there's all sorts of debate who this um, companion of Paul was. Um, who, who could it be? Uh, more than likely, I think the best guess is it's probably a leader in that local church. A leader known to Paul, someone who worked alongside Paul before uh, when he was working in Philippi. Uh, we don't know for sure, but what he is encouraging this leader to do is to help these two warring women uh, to sort out their issue, to get them together, to sit down, to talk it through, and to come up with a way forward. Because sometimes we need help with that. And this sometimes falls to us as leaders uh, in local churches. Um, and so in our church, uh, we will on occasion have to do that. Um, we will on occasion have to tap someone on the shoulder and say something like, I've, I've heard there's an issue. Do you want to talk about it? Because unity is important. So important, in fact, that we can't just ignore it or pretend it's not there. No, Paul says we must do whatever is necessary to sort it out without delay. Be reconciled to one another. But it is interesting, the little... Paul could have finished at that, but he adds these little, this extra, these extra little words um, describing these two women who worked at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Paul goes on to give them a reason why they should work for unity and try to get over their issue. Two reasons, very simple. Because they were working at Paul's side. They're fellow workers in the gospel. As we're thinking about this morning, partners on the same team, on the same side, working for the same goal. Look, you have everything that matters in common. And because you have everything that matters in common, sort it out. And also on top of that, their names uh, are written uh, in the book of life. But before we come to that, just uh, that idea that they're, they've got everything that matters in common. There's a, a great story told uh, of uh, Admiral Lord Nelson on the eve of the Battle of Trafalgar. And he found out that two of his commanders had fallen out. And he sent word to both commanders and they were called to his ship. Uh, and he made them stand on the deck of his ship and they stood about, you know, five feet apart. And for the rest of the meeting, as the admiral, he commanded both of them to stand side by side with interlinking arms. Can you imagine that? Two grown men. That's what he commanded, and that's what they had to do. And finally, he said, as he pointed out to the horizon, where the French and the Spanish ships were visible on the horizon... He said to both of them, yonder is your enemy. Yonder is your enemy. You aren't enemies. You're on the same side. Sort it out. Work together for the sake of the gospel. Also, as I said, they work on, they're working together, but they also have, they have uh, this in common. Their names are both written in the book of life. They have both been chosen by God, saved by God, commissioned by God, having one Savior, one Father, one Spirit, and sharing one destiny. And there's absolutely no excuse for petty squabbles in the local church. It's painful to deal with, but we've got to pull off that plaster uh, say sorry where we've offended someone and accept the apology for someone who uh, asks for our forgiveness. Be reconciled to one another. And so just, be, just as I move on, before we move on, I have just a question as you sit here. Is there anyone that springs into your mind right now that you need to be reconciled with?
Is there anyone that you need to say sorry to? Is there anyone, if you're honest, the relationship's got a bit frosty? And maybe the right thing to do is for you just to show an act of kindness to show that you don't want it to be frosty anymore. Be reconciled to one another. Paul goes on uh, in verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. I say it again, rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always. I say it again, rejoice. The famous preacher, Martin Lloyd-Jones, used to preach three books of the Bible, but pretty much a verse or two at most at a time. It took him ages to get, like, he would would have been horrified at me doing all of Philippians in one weekend. What a waste, he would have thought. Um, But he preached through uh, all of Philippians. And when he got to this verse, he preached a whole sermon on rejoice in the Lord always. And then the next week, he got up onto the pulpit. Yeah, you've guessed it. Next week, he got up into the pulpit and he said, if Paul had to say it twice, I'd say it twice. And he preached the previous sermon again. Um, we don't have time to do that, uh, preach a whole sermon on this verse, but what we do have time to do is to think, what is Paul talking about here? Rejoice. Now, rejoice for us seems to be an emotion, and it seems very, very bizarre that you would hear a command to rejoice. Isn't it, isn't it a bit odd? A command to rejoice. So is that not a bit like me saying to my little five-year-old son, Love broccoli, Samuel. Love broccoli. But you can't just command an emotion like that. It doesn't work, does it? Are we to be those sort of Christians who sort of fake it until we make it? You know, and just if we're not feeling happy, we just stick on that sort of fake smile uh, and try to kind of sing as many of those prayer choruses as we can until we can kind of muster up some sort of emotion. Is that what Paul's asking us to do? Look, even if that's, that was possible, to fake, it, to fake it until you make it, which I don't think it is, by the way, but uh, even if it was possible, wouldn't you want to say to Paul at some point, Paul, like, you don't, you don't know what's going on in my life at the moment. You don't know the circumstances I'm feeling. feeling. You, don't, you don't know the, the heartbreak that I'm going through, the disappointment, the, the illness, the, the broken relationship, the crushing disappointment. You know, how can you tell me to rejoice in the midst of all that? What you, want to, what you need to see um, is that joy or rejoicing, which is just the verb for joy, um, is different from happiness. It's not merely an emotion in the Bible. Uh, one writer has put it like this, which I think is really, really helpful. Joy is that deep-seated delight in God and his promises that cannot be removed by circumstances or affected by our surface emotions. I think that's really helpful. Joy is that deep-seated delight in God and in his promises that cannot be removed by circumstances or affected by our surface emotions. And we have seen Paul do this in this letter already, if you've been with us. And so last night we looked at Paul rejoicing. Remember, Paul writes this letter from a dank prison cell, from a prison cell, with the rats and the rancid food chained, confined. And yet we read that he (coughs) smiles in the prison cell feels joy. Why does he feel joy? Well, he feels joy as he thinks about the progress of the gospel. As he's stuck here, he's actually getting to share the gospel with the guards who are stationed to guard him. And the whole platoon has heard about Jesus. Uh, And because other Christians have heard that he's in prison for good and bad reasons are given greater courage to share the gospel. And so Paul rejoices, despite his painful, awful circumstances, he rejoices that the gospel's going out. And secondly, we're told he rejoices at the prospect uh, of his future. 
Now, he doesn't know how he's going to... There's only two ways out of his cell, as we thought about last night. One is he'll either go to trial and he'll be, uh, he'll be released, uh, acquitted and released, or he'll, he'll be executed. Those are the only two ways out of his cell, and yet he rejoices. Why? Because he knows, if I'm released, that is to live as Christ. I will live to serve him and help his people and to spread the good news of Jesus, and that's great. Win for me. But if I'm executed, that's also win. That's a win because I get to be with Jesus. So even in the midst of Paul's painful, uncomfortable circumstances, with his disappointment and his physical constraints, Paul rejoices. And so the challenge is for us, will we rejoice in our circumstances? Because it is possible Despite your circumstances at the moment, there are some things that are true and are constantly true and worthy of your praise and celebration. What are they? We could list hundreds, but let let me give you a couple. God, your Father, is in complete control of your circumstances. Nothing happens by accident. It's all according to his plan, and it's a good plan even though you don't see it yet. Jesus has died for you to purchase your forgiveness. The Spirit is with you to empower, to strengthen you through all your circumstances so that you'll never be alone. You are part of a family of God's people who love and care for you. And your future, as we were thinking this morning, is absolutely fantastic and guaranteed. Don't you see that I say it doesn't matter what your circumstances are like then? Look, I don't, look, I don't know what's going on in your lives. And I know for, for some of you it, it is painful and awful. I know that. I know that. But it doesn't stop those things being true. It doesn't stop those things being true. And the right response to those things is to rejoice is to rejoice. Now, what on earth has got that got to do, even theoretically, with unity? With unity? Well, I think it's quite simply this. It is very, very, very hard to hold a grudge against someone if you are rejoicing in the Lord. To realize that you are forgiven when you didn't deserve it. And then to hold on to a grudge against someone else who has slighted you in some way. You show me someone, you point me to someone who is struggling with bitterness and resentment, who refuses to forgive, I will show you someone who is not rejoicing in their salvation. Rejoicing in your salvation is something you should do anyway. Something you should do anyway. Because these wonderful truths are exactly that, true. But it's especially important if you're struggling in a particular relationship. Because that rejoicing in your salvation, reminding yourselves of these truths and letting your heart be warmed by them, rehearsing them in your head and feeling that joy in response. If you do that often enough, any bitterness and resentment will begin to, not instantly, but it will begin to melt away. Be reconciled. Be rejoicing. Thirdly, be gentle. Be gentle. Let your gentleness be evident to all. Let your gentleness be evident to all. This is actually quite a difficult word to translate exactly what it means. It could mean something like patient or considerate, uh, but it also could mean not standing on your rights. Um, Paul says, whatever it means, been patient and considerate, not standing on your rights and on your high horse looking down at someone else. Um, Either way, Paul is saying that your gentleness should shine out from you. It should be evident. 
You should be famous for your gentleness, Paul is saying. Now, the trouble is, we would rather be famous for other things. Is that not true? Especially if you're involved in a conflict with someone. If you're involved in a conflict with someone, you'd rather be famous for being right. That's what I'd rather be famous for, if I'm honest. Um, Paul's saying, look, no, no. It'd be far better if you were famous for being gentle, considerate, patient, not standing on your rights, but considering them above yourself. Sound familiar if you were here this morning? Of course, we walk in the footsteps, uh, are to walk in the footsteps of the Lord Jesus as our model, who is ultimately the one who was gentle, who was gentle. He was patient and considerate towards you and me. He didn't stand on his rights, but was concerned for us, more interested in, uh, uh, in serving us than in serving himself. He was someone who was famous for his gentleness. And those who follow him should aspire to that too. <coughs> be reconciled. Be rejoicing. Be gentle. Fourthly, be prayerful. Be prayerful. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. Now, again, it's per- look, I admit it, it's perfectly possible that Paul has completely changed subject here uh, and has moved on to a whole other topic. But I think there's a connection. I do. I think there's a connection. Part of the reason why, part of the reason why we fall out with other people, part of the reason why we're irritable and lash out, that we're not patient, that we give in to inappropriate displays of anger, is because inside we're like a coiled spring of anxiety. And Paul is saying your relationships could be sorted if we dealt with the underlying cause of your anxiety on the inside. Now again, we need to be very clear here. What is, uh, what is Paul talking about? Paul is not saying, and this is where we need to be careful, Paul is not saying it is wrong to be anxious. He's not saying it's wrong to be anxious. Uh, back in chapter 2, verse 28, Uh, speaking about Epaphroditus, we are told, Paul says, I was anxious for uh, Epaphroditus. I thought he was going to die. I was anxious about it. When he speaks of Timothy and uh, in uh, chapter 2, verse 20, I have no one else like him who takes genuine interest in your welfare, literally, same word, who is anxious for your welfare. You see, anxiety is something that comes your way, and it's just part of the dynamic of being human. We are not in control. We are small and limited and finite. Uh, And when hit with circumstances outside our control, it's an instinctive reaction to be anxious. What Paul is asking us to do here is, is, or what he's giving us here, is a remedy for that anxiety what to do when you get anxious. Paul is not telling you to be, this is not a command to be tranquil, be tranquil. You know, just kind of, you know, sit with your legs crossed and sort of hmm until you can find some sort of inner peace and be tranquil. No, no, not at all. Paul is saying that the way to be anxious about nothing is to pray about everything. The way to be anxious about nothing is to pray about everything. I look, I know there's a, a danger for those of us with a, a bit more of an anxious disposition uh, is that you hear this verse uh, and you're, you actually begin to be anxious because of the anxiety that you're feeling. Yeah. Again, we need to see that Paul is not saying anxiety is wrong, but what to do when it comes our way. And here's what to do. You are to pray. You're to pray. 
You see, when the reason for much of our anxiety, the reason for much of our apprehension, the reason for much of our, our fear and our panic and our doubt is that we've begun to believe lies. That's the reason why we're anxious so much of the time. We've begun to believe lies. What sort of lies? Lies like these. God is not in control. So I'm anxious. God has forgotten about me or he doesn't love me. And so I'm anxious. God is not good. And so I'm anxious. But when we pray, almost in the very act of praying, we are reminding ourselves of the truth. And what is the truth? The truth is there at the end of verse 5, that the Lord is near, that the Lord is near. I love the fact, we hadn't planned this, uh, so obviously very insightful leaders team here, uh, that they read Psalm 145 for us, because I think this isn't just a reference to Jesus coming again, the Lord's near. It's not that his, his coming is near or imminent. I think more likely this is a reference, a quote from Psalm 145. Uh, We just read it there a few moments ago. Uh, Verses 18 and 19 say this, The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desires of those who fear him. He hears their cry and he saves them. Now there's at least one couple uh, of young children here. I suspect there's more than one. But one, uh, if you have young children, say you're, um, if, you, if you're, they're your children, if you have children, uh, or you're uh, an auntie or an uncle and you're babysitting of very small infants, what will happen is you'll be babysitting or you'll be minding and there will be the little, the little plug-in uh, monitor, baby monitor. And especially if you're a parent, your ear is always attentive to the cry, isn't it? ready to pounce, can sort them out. Maybe something's wrong. I'll go in and see what's wrong. The ear, your ear is attentive to the cry. I got a pretty good picture of what's going on here. God is like that kind of attentive father. His ear is attentive to our cry, to our prayer, because he does love us. He is in control, and he is good. And when we pray, we are dramatizing that, reminding ourselves of that. Prayer changes things in the world. God uses prayer as a means of his furthering his purpose in the world. That's true, absolutely. But one thing prayer primarily does is that it changes you and it changes me as we pray, as we remind ourselves of the truth. And when we do that, look at the wonderful promise of verse 9. And the peace of God which transcends all understanding, will guard your heart and your minds in Christ Jesus. Again, don't misunderstand Paul here. He's not saying that when you pray, there is a promise that everything will suddenly be all right. All your problems will just evaporate. Not at all. That's not the promise here. The promise here is in the midst of the turmoil, in the midst of the heartache, in the midst of the disappointment, in the midst of the illness and the worry, you will be given the peace of God that is almost unexplainable, that will guard your heart and your mind like a garrison protecting it. I've had the privilege of seeing that even this year as some of our church members are going through some very painful circumstances. One uh, very difficult relationship breakup, one very difficult health issue. I have seen them pray this prayer, heard them pray this prayer, and almost seen their peace. The problems haven't gone away, but their trust in God's goodness and in his sovereignty and in his love is almost unshakable in both of their cases. Again, often our troubles relationally, 
the irritability that we feel, the lashing out that we sometimes do is, is the result of the anxiety that's coiled up inside us. Here's the solution. The way not to be anxious about anything is to pray about everything. And when you do that, there's a wonderful promise. Not that the problems will all go away, but that the peace of God will be your experience. And I think that, again, it's not just peace in your heart, but that peace will flow out into your relationships. Fifthly and finally, be disciplined and discerning. Be disciplined and discerning. Be reconciled. Be rejoicing. Be gentle. Be prayerful. Be disciplined and discerning. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. These verses are to do with how we fill our mind, how we fill our mind. You see, we need to get away from the notion that what I think about doesn't shape who I am. Because the opposite is actually true. What you think about profoundly affects and shapes who you are. So look, if you watch TV and read magazines and surf websites that trivialize sex that constantly give you a message that you will be happy if you have a nicer house, that you will be more fulfilled if you have that, that, that special someone, uh, that you will be more content if you've got a perfectly formed capsule wardrobe, uh, whatever it is. Um, don't be deceived. That is shaping you. Those might be rubbish websites, but that rubbish is going in. And it is affecting you. We must not believe the lie that I can think about whatever I want and it doesn't really matter, it doesn't do any harm. It doesn't affect me. Because that's not true. The battle for godliness begins in your mind. Begins in your mind. The way that we begin uh, the, the road towards godliness, to living life and making decisions that are more and more pleasing to God uh, and more and more honoring to his son, the Lord Jesus, is by controlling what we think about, what we think about. Again, I suppose that's, there's kind of three main directions for that, I suppose. Uh, the first one is be aware of what's filling your mind. Be aware of what's filling your mind. It's worth just doing a little mental inventory. You know, what, where, what do you spend your time putting in? What novels are you reading? What websites are you visiting? What box sets are you watching? Um, what TV, what, what music are you listening to? What is going in? Look, I realize, and with, let's be honest, we cannot escape this world. We are part of this world. But the challenge is not to consume the, the cultural products of this world, cinema and art and um, music, uncritically. Don't just let it wash all over you. Everything that we read and assess, we are to be making the, the, we're to be focusing on what is good here in this that I should celebrate, and what is lies here that I should reject. What is filling your mind? You might be reading whatever website and thinking, I know this is rubbish. But again, remember, this rubbish is shaping you, shaping me. First, be careful, beware of what you fill your mind with. Then secondly, beware of what you occupy your mind with. Where does your mind go when you hit neutral, right? When you're daydreaming. What do you think about? Only you can answer that question. What, what goes on in your head? Are we left thinking, if only I had that, whatever. If only I could make that next step in my career. If only I could get my bank balance up to this point. If only I could get that new kitchen. If only I could have that lovely car, that nice holiday. 
Maybe it's more sinister than that. Maybe thinking lustful thoughts. If I could have that person. Uh, C.H. Spurgeon, the famous Baptist preacher, talking about this subject, said, you can't stop birds flying over your head. Right? You can't stop thoughts like whizzing in. But you can stop them building a nest in your hair. Like, that's really helpful, isn't it? When you find yourself thinking about something that you know is rubbish and wrong, what should you do? You should say, stop that. What am I doing? Put it out of your head. Pop, take, the, take action, mental action to put it out. Stop thinking about that. We're to be careful what we fill our mind with, careful what we occupy our mind with. And here's the third one, and I think this is the most difficult positively fill your mind with what's good. And I guess as I thought about this while prepping, I think we don't do this. I don't think we do this. This is not just, I do my devotions. I do my devotions in the morning. You know, we kind of daily bread reading, you know, reads a verse and I say a prayer and filled my mind with goodness. There we go. When was the last time you sat down and you thought about how loyalty and friendship is a wonderful thing? When was the last time you thought about how faithfulness in marriage is beautiful? You see, I'm just not sure we... we we sit down and think about noble, beautiful, wonderful things. Positively. It's not just that we're, the, the object is not to just avoid rubbish and avoid bad things. The goal is to have your mind filled with good things. To look at creation and enjoy its beauty. To enjoy art for its skill. You get the idea? When are we focusing, filling our minds with the goodness and the beauty and the truth that God has preserved for us in this created world? We need to be disciplined and be discerning with our thoughts. Again, what has this got to do with unity? Unity. When was the last time you thought, sat down and thought how bitterness and resentment are ugly things? They're ugly. But how forgiveness and self-sacrifice is beautiful. Do you see if you were doing that more often? I think our relationships would be a bit smoother, wouldn't they? I want to suggest, again, I may be wrong. This is maybe a random list of disconnected things, but I do think it's suggestive that each one of them does in some way connect to relationships and harmony within the local church. Paul leaves himself, finally, holds himself up as an example of someone who's doing all of these things. Someone who is working hard in his relationships, someone who is rejoicing in the Lord Uh, someone who is gentle, someone who is prayerful, someone who is deliberate and discerning. You, You saw me. You saw me. You saw the way I spoke. Uh, When when anyone asked what I was thinking about, I told you. You saw how I reacted and didn't react. As someone who's trying to put this in practice, you should follow my example. Now, we don't have access to Paul directly. Uh, We can learn a lot about him from his letters. But the truth is, there's lots of people in our local churches who are actually noble examples for us to follow. Those who are quick to forgive, slow to get angry. Those who are joyful in the Lord. Those who are gentle and prayerful and discerning and disciplined in their thought life. The way we learn is not just by... In many ways, the Christian life isn't just taught. It's caught. Which is a wonderful example and and brings us back again to the church. The need for one another. 
uh, as we learn from one another and as we can model then to those who are a little younger than us in the faith. I want you to take a moment in silence, just a moment in silence. I've listed those, those things a couple of times now. Hopefully you can remember them if you haven't taken notes. Uh, to be reconciled, to be rejoicing, to be gentle, to be prayerful, and to be disciplined. And I want to take, just take a moment in silence just to reflect and just maybe to listen to what the Holy Spirit is saying. Maybe he's pointing his finger on one of those things in your life. We'll just take a moment in silence and then I will pray. Father, we ask that you would forgive us our sins, not because of any merits that we have, not because we can make it up to you in the future, but pleading the name of the Lord Jesus. Father, we know we have failed in many of these areas. Please forgive us our sins. And Father, we pray then that you would help us to be those who forgive the sins of others. Father, we pray, please, that increasingly we would be a people, a people who bear with one another, who irritate us, that we would be quick to forgive those who offend us, and that we would be uh, willing uh, to serve those in need with compassion. Father, we know we can't do this alone. Left to our own devices, we gravitate towards selfishness and pride. And so we pray, please, for your Holy Spirit to work in our minds to renew them, in our hearts to soften them, and in our wills to strengthen them, so that we might live lives that reflect your glory, that we might live lives that spread your fame. And so we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.